so harm and vikam. So vikam is the reaction from sinful activities. I did something sinful. I stole, so I'm being being stolen from. You know. Now this isn't anything new. Um, in the Bible, it says, "As you sow, so shall you reap." That sounds the same thing, doesn't it? You know. Um, Science, Sir Isaac Newton established that for every action, there's an equivalent and opposite reaction. Same thing, the law of cause and effect. Uh, and then on the street, they say, hey man, what goes around comes around. So we all know this to, to the fiber of our being. We know that uh, I, get, I get what I do. I get a return. So... Uh, let's explore what this means for a minute. If you can understand <clears throat> that that is the law. Now, when I say law, that's just the way things work. And uh, Krishna put the law of karma here to make it fair for everyone. With the law of karma, in fact, uh, in effect, everyone gets their just desserts. And there's no escaping it. There, you can, but we'll get into that. So if I create an evil, if I hurt somebody, even if I hurt their feelings, that will come back on me. You see, if I steal from you, if I steal your phone, wouldn't that be terrible? Lose your phone? But if I steal your phone, something close, something valuable to you, then the same thing will happen to me down the line. That cannot be stopped, you see. So with this in mind, uh, this removes the concept of me ever being a victim. If I have to do it to get it, if I have to send it around for it to come around, so therefore... If out of the clear blue, somebody steals my phone, I can't say, well, that guy stole my phone. What a jerk he is, you know? I'm a victim. No, no, you're getting, you're getting your due. So with this understanding, this is one of the ways that bhakti yoga helps you to relax and understand. When bad things come upon you, you may think, damn, why is this happening? And then you realize, ah, I just paid back some karma. You know, I paid back a nasty debt. I don't remember when, <clears throat> maybe very much earlier in this life, maybe in a prior life, but I did something and I got, I got the return. You see? So if we can just embrace that and understand it, we become much more peaceful. And we don't feel like, Oh, I'm being victimized. It may feel like it, you see, but it, it helps you to deal with it more. So, going forward, if you live in such a way that you don't get any uh, poor reactions, they exhaust. They go. They go away. Um, there are certain things you can do to accelerate this exhausting of your uh, bad activities, your bad results that you're doing. 
one of them is chanting Hare Krishna that starts to minimize and suck them all away. Uh, performing loving devotional service to uh, God and or his devotees. That starts to minimize this, you see. If you're such a wonderful loving person and totally surrendered to pleasing God and all the living entities, Krishna may say, I'm just going to take it all away. You know, I don't want you to suffer because you've come, you've, as they say, seen the light. You don't, you've gotten out of that rat race of <clears throat> cause and effect. And this karma holds us. It holds us in place. Even if you live a, a a life of uh, nothing but good activities. Then at, your, uh, at the time of death, you have to take another birth and accept all these good things that you accumulated. Now, that's not bad, is it? But it's not fully good because I have to go through the, um, the rigors and the, uh, the pain of being born. It's not easy for a child to be born. For everything that's born, that also means there will be a death. And in between this birth and death, there will be some uh, disease. You'll get sick from time to time. It could be bad, could be just the flu. Could be a really bad flu you got in India somewhere. Uh, and ultimately, if you live a really good life, I'm talking, let's say you're born in an area where the air is very pure and you breathe nothing but clean air and the water that you're exposed to is very fresh, pure. So you get nothing but fresh, clear, clean water. Uh, all of the foods you eat are organic, you see. And from uh, early on in your life, as soon as you can walk, you are very active and exercised. So you're eating properly, you're smelling clean air, drinking clean water, exercising a lot, and you're not accident prone. So it looks like you've got a good life ahead, right? So what's the reward for that? Old age. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no bargain in this material world. Once you get here, it, it can be better uh, than, one can be better than the other, but it, it's pretty much all a raw deal. Because <laughs> I have to get old, you know. My doctor <clears throat> in Mumbai tells me that I've got a, a, a body that's like made out of iron, strong. I've always been strong. And uh, my astrologer says I'm supposed to live, you know, a lot of years. Sometimes I hope he's wrong. <laughs> when I'm sick, I think, oh my God, let me see. So, uh, um, but uh, the only value of being alive is to be able to be united with uh, the Supreme Lord. Why do I, why do I want God? because I want to be happy. And I've been trying to be happy without him. You know, 
we uh, we may not realize that I've been totally aware of trying to be without him, but I really haven't been putting all of my energy into catching him. I've been going for all this great stuff that I want, you know, <laughs> and pursuing this and pursuing that. And <clears throat> for many of us, God has not been the top thing on our list, you know, to achieve. And um, because of that, uh, we tend to suffer. That brings on suffering. Why? Because happiness has its source. It's like water comes from the clouds, which comes from the ocean. You know, it's evaporated from the ocean. But there's a source of everything. The source of everything is God. The ultimate source. If I want happiness, uh, I can get secondhand happiness, or I can get real, uh, true, organic happiness from the source. The source is God. If I want love, God is the source of love, you see. If I want a good life, uh, should I try to establish a good life without him? Or should I just become his loving associate? And if I do, then I get to associate with uh, other loving associates that he has. And then I have a good life, you see. <laughs> Does this make any bless you? Does this make any sense? So this bhakti yoga <clears throat> is a um, it's a a pursuance of a better life. So that's the price we have to pay to become a devotee of God. You have to have a good life because you can't be one. You can't be a, a loving associate of God without having a good life. You see, it's like you can't stick your hand in the fire without getting burned or hold ice without feeling cold. You can't. <clears throat> if you become, if you develop a loving, close relationship with God, you positively will be happy. So um, this uh, allows us to understand that if to the degrees that people truly are spiritual, Many people believe that they're very spiritual, although we can see their, their lives are truly happy. So uh, we can see that they're actually pursuing the spiritual life, but they haven't really caught it yet. Otherwise, they would be blissful, even if they're old and sick, you see. They'd be blissful. It comes with it. You cannot separate the two. So... Um, but happiness is something we all want. It's the nature of the living entity. The nature, uh, as we talked about eternity. What a sweet name. Or not sweeter. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm entitled to my own opinion. You are. <laughs> uh, the nature of the soul. By the way, uh, how many of, show of hands, how many of you believe you have a soul? Okay, I'm going to be a real smart aleck and point out an error. I disagree. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. But now, why do we think like that? My knee-jerk reaction is that 
I have a soul. So then I always ask people, if you have a soul, then who is this you? And what is this you that has a soul? Because I'm identifying with my body. You see? And I shouldn't be, but I, I do. Uh, and this is one of the biggest, if not the very biggest problem that plagues all of us that live in this material world. Because I start to judge the differences between us based on bodies. You're a male, you're a female. I interpret that different. This one is a dog, this one is a, uh, a nice sweet little kitty cat, and this one is a delicious steak. You see? I'm identifying these souls with their bodies. This one is, uh, this one has a different color body. This one believes uh, that if you put some particular spice in the food, it'll be better. So I don't think I like them because it's different than mine. So uh, I start to distinguish between my ethnic group, my social economic group, uh, political group. So you can see the tremendous divide, therefore struggle amongst us. You see, it's tremendously, uh, <clears throat> it's much more noticeable in America than other countries you travel to. America's very divided. <clears throat> it's very unfortunate. Here it is. Will it stay that way? No. This is just passing. It's like sometimes there's a cloud that goes over. Even here in Arizona, you know, we'll have a beautiful sunny day. Then all of a sudden, this rogue cloud goes across the sky, casting a, a shade, you know. But it passes. So, uh, and right now, the clouds on America, give it another decade or whatever, and it'll be on some other country. People will be tearing each other apart over pretty much nothing, you see. So... This, these are the struggles that we have because I identify with my body. I am my body, and that means that you are yours, you see. Uh, because of that, I see that my religion is better than your religion, you see. Uh, does this make any sense? Rather than understanding that, well, I am an eternal soul. Not just that I... And this is a, a I, I gave a talk the other night at the Jewish high school uh, here in town. I forget the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful people. Just wonderful people. Whenever I get around <clears throat> really intelligent religious people, uh, the first thing we realize is how much we have in common. What do you have in common? We want God. We want God, you see. Otherwise, we'd be all, we'd all be out doing something else, you know. We'd be at happy hour wanting to uh, to get intoxicated, so we don't maybe not have to think about God so much, you see. But we want we want God. We've got these this in together, so we can understand. As, as soon as you put God in the center, everything aligns. Now our methods of getting God may appear to be, on the surface, somewhat different. 
But if we start out, I am an eternal soul, part and parcel of God, and so are you, we are eternally um, related. Not only that, we are eternally soulmates. We've always been together. We've always been in love. You see, when you're in that normal stage of self-realization, and I think everybody's heard of that term, people misuse it. Self-realization means that you find out, I am an eternal part and parcel of the Supreme Godhead, and all of you are too. You're all my, well, our, our spiritual eternal DNA is exactly the same. You can tell we're the same, you see. So uh, self-realization means to realize the self, you, the soul, which changes the way you see the world, changes the way you, see, you deal with the living entities that are here, you see. Uh, you have a different respect for everyone. Even if they think your political view is, is stupid or if they don't like your football team, you know. You see people, they have riots because <clears throat> somebody thinks that their football team is better than, than the other guys, you know, so they fight and turn over cars and things like that. <clears throat> because I see a difference between you. You know, you're wearing a particular colored baseball cap and that means you're for the other team so that makes you my enemy it makes me want to hurt you you see so this is the danger of uh, being in this material world the danger is that your consciousness may slide down to the bodily uh, conception of life and then once it gets there you may come in contact with others on that level and then you never know what that could happen. People could say, I just don't, I don't think you fit in here, boy. I've had people tell me that. <laughs> uh, I don't think you fit in here, boy. Back in the 70s, if you went around dressed like this, I, in, in Alabama or Georgia, <clears throat> you'll hear that from time to time. You know, I had a Georgia Highway Patrolman tell me that. I don't think you fit in here, boy. If you're going to stay here, then I'm going to have to take you downtown and check you into a local hotel. We call it the Uptown Hotel. It's got bars on the windows to keep you from falling out on the street and hurting yourself. Did I make myself clear, boy? Uh, sir, yes, sir. I will be out of town immediately. <laughs> you know. Of course, we just go to another lot and try to distribute more books and hope we didn't get caught. So, so there's a danger uh, of losing your consciousness of your eternality, you know, your soul consciousness, and then a further danger of falling in association with others that are in that. And it's very dangerous, you see. It's extremely dangerous. So, however, if you can maintain your uh, consciousness that you are not the body, even though you may go in amongst people who are convinced they are the body, you're still safe. Because you know 
you know how to conduct yourself you see you know where they're and you don't you, can, you don't take them seriously you know it's like uh, I was going through <coughs> rural West Texas several years ago <laughs> I don't know if you guys is anybody here familiar with rural West Texas I'm talking to North of Pecos. Does anybody know where Pecos is? I didn't think so. Is it, when you get outside of El Paso County uh, on Interstate 10, the speed limit goes up to 80. You know, because there is nothing. So, and then you pick up I-20 to head towards Dallas, and you're in the middle of nothing. It's some oil country out there, you see. And so I pulled over in, in uh, Pecos because I had to use the bathroom. And I was dressed like this. And uh, so on my way to the bathroom, there's this two, uh, I think they call them roughnecks, the guys that work on the oil rigs. You know what I'm talking about? You, ever, you know, these are tough guys. They live uh, out there in the middle of nowhere uh, during the week away from their families. And then they wait. They may live hundreds of miles away, you know, but they get paid a lot of money uh, to produce the oil and work on those oil rigs. And it's hard work, you know. These are tough guys. <laughs> There's just no doubt that they're tough. And, um, and so they're not the kind of guys you want to tangle with. And so, and they're, here they are away from their, their families. And if it's not, Miller time, does anybody know what that means? <laughs> then they're bored. They've got a minute or two and they're bored. So I get out of my, my car to go inside this gas station to use the bathroom. And there's two of them there. The guys are like mountains, you know, muscles, beards, boots, cowboy hats. And as I go past them, this one of them says, the dog. That's a cute little skirt you got there, boy. <laughs> and so I realized <laughs> I know how you guys think, and I know how to operate in, uh, in this situation. And so I just stopped and said, Do you think? <laughs> you know? And I said, No, I just happened to think, you know. Uh, the University of Texas, this is, these are their colors, you know, Texas Longhorns, mm -hmm. you know, this, it's orange, orange and white. And I said, no, I'm just a, just a Texas fan. And the guy said, yeah, right on, brother, right on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, okay. Got out of another one. <laughs> now, I could have said, how dare you say that? And they would have stomped me in between the cracks of the concrete. <laughs> and I'd still be there like this. <laughs> you see, so we, we, the devotee learns how to manipulate through the material energy. You, know, you may, who knows what country you may be going through. Sometimes I find myself in a, in a Muslim country. And uh, I know how to, how to deal. It's not a problem. We offer respect to everyone, you know? 
If you think I'm dressed weird, well, then you're sharing your perspective. And if I can see through your eyes, I probably do look weird as hell. <laughs> but I just want you to know that I'm your friend. I'm trying to be your friend. And that means a lot to people. So, um, happiness. We all want to be happy. You see? Uh, and it is... It, it, it really is yours. It belongs to you. Uh, the nature of the soul. Sat, cheat, anatta. These are three Sanskrit words. Uh, the soul is sat, eternal. You're eternal. Meaning that, now our definition of eternality is a little different than many people's. Eternity goes both ways. It doesn't mean starting now, going forever or starting when you uh, were conceived and going forever. No, you always have existed. There never has been a time when you did not exist. And you never, as a soul, you never will cease to exist. So you're, you've always been and you always will be. Uh, it's just, where will you be and what will you be doing? Where will you be? What will your pastimes be? That's your choice. You can continue on in the material world, uh, trying to uh, manipulate the material energy as best you can. You may become famous and wealthy, you know, for whatever that's worth. Some people think, well, that's pretty much everything, isn't it? So I get, I get tremendous wealth. Then I get everything. You know, great sex life, great motor cars, houses. <clears throat> I get a house on every continent. Let's see. So, but if that's true, uh, I was noticing uh, just before I left for India, the richest man in the world, this, this keeps changing. You know, this, that was always a new, Bill Gates is like the richest for a while, then he's not, and then he is. And Warren Buffett and some other guys. Um, but the latest guy is uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. Is that his name? Brazos? Bezos. Bezos? Bezos. Yeah. You know, $165 billion. Richest guy in the world, by far. And so, um, but is he the happiest guy in the world? Is he even happy? I mean, he's about to go through the most expensive divorce in the history of this planet. You know, he's got a divorce and she gets half. She's going to get 80 of his billions. She's the smartest businesswoman. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think there's a lot of... I don't think there's been a lot of sweet words in the Bezos household. You know, good morning, honey. Isn't it great to be us? No. What are you doing? Go sleep in. When you're that rich, you don't have to go sleep on the couch. You can have like 50 other rooms in your house or go to another house. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but it's still... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't touch me. You go sleep in the West Wing tonight. 
<laughs> you know, so, uh, but the suffering is the same. If you're rich, the suffering is the same. Uh, heartbreak, loss of love, <clears throat> or feeling unloved. Feeling unloved isn't any sweeter if you've got uh, $160 billion or even $1 billion. It doesn't uh, taste any better, you see. So happiness doesn't come from material success. It doesn't come from uh, fame. You know, we see that people who are wealthy and famous, they don't seem to be that happy. A lot of them commit suicide. Look at poor Robin Williams. I mean, this guy had a lifetime of fame, distinguishment. He was considered one of the greatest ever. You see, adoration, he had fame, he had profit, he had adoration, he had distinction. People adored him. Fames, uh, fans around the world adore and still do. And yet, he was so unhappy that he, at like 63 years old, he, he couldn't go on. So fame, profit, adoration, and distinction. Elvis Presley had a lot of things going for him. He was not a very happy guy. <clears throat> you know, I know some very wealthy people and we're not amongst the happiest people that I know. One of them is. One of them is the, one of the happiest people that I know. One of the happiest rich people that I've ever met, probably the happiest, richest per person, is a billionaire named Albert Ford. He's a great-grandson of Henry Ford, the heir to the Ford. Uh, Ford Throne. And he's also my godfather. He's a devotee of Krishna, has been for 46 years. So, <clears throat> and he's given billions to help uh, our movement. So, and he's happy as ever. I just saw him in, uh, in Mayapur. We were together a little bit. He's just an old man like me, but he's happy. You know, very happy. So, uh, you are eternal. Cheat means you are full of knowledge. You should know practically everything that God knows. He doesn't want to hide. He doesn't feel he has to hide anything from you. Why do I not know uh, what he knows? Because I went away from it to try to operate without him. You see? Now, I do have access to it, but I'm convinced that I'm this body. <laughs> you see? So if I, it, it, when I'm convinced that I am this body, I immediately uh, voluntarily accept the limitations that come along with having this body. You see, this is called illusion. In Sanskrit, it's called maya, that which is not. You see, uh, I think I'm this body. I don't realize that I'm an eternal living entity Sat, and I'm full of knowledge. Cheat. And Ananda, <clears throat> I am entitled to be eternally blissful, not just happy, beyond happiness, blissful. Uh, and it's like uh, we're talking the kind of bliss and kind of happiness that's like a sun that never sets. It doesn't flicker, it doesn't go away, regardless of what happens around us. You see, we remain ananda, full of bliss. You see, 
So this is what self-realization will deliver. It'll give you <clears throat> happiness, and it also takes away your karma. It erases your karma. Uh, if you're going to get out of the rat race of just repeating birth after uh, after death and birth after death, <coughs> then uh, Krishna feels like, well, you don't you don't need this karmic baggage that you're carrying with you birth after birth. You know, you don't need that. So let me mitigate that or take it all away, whatever. Because now you're on a different path. You want to rise up to the point that after you quit this body, you don't take another birth. You go back to your home where you came from to associate with him. And the other associates there that we left when we left to come here. Doesn't mean that we're bad. We were just real curious. What would it be like out on my own away from God? Doing my own thing without him. And so as we find out that wasn't a really good idea, then we get to the point where we want to go back. When you want to go back, that's practically already being there. Does that make any sense? It's like, uh, what is that movie? Uh, the one they show around Thanksgiving uh, with Judy Garland. Uh, is it, uh, Wizard of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah. You know, she wants to go home. And all she had to do was click her heels together. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. So you get in that consciousness that I want to go home. You know, Krishna, I want you back. And your troubles are over. Your trip is over. There's no place for you in the material world once you get to that consciousness. There's nothing here for you. When you get spiritual consciousness, the value of this world is kind of useless because it's, uh, although we can say that the mountains are beautiful, the sunsets are beautiful, the moon rises are beautiful. Yes, that's true. However, <clears throat> once I realize the land that I'm from, that's far more beautiful. I don't have any use for this temporary merry-go-round that I'm on, you see. I want to go back. I want, I want to reclaim what belongs to me. And I want to take as many people with me as I can when I, when I go there. So, uh, let me read a quick verse from Bhagavad Gita. Does anybody here not have, do you guys have Bhagavad Gita? Can you even say it? You only get one chance, I'm sorry. You did it! Okay, we're going to have to give it one. <laughs> and you get one chance. <laughs> but you can have one in. See what it is? How important it is to have good association. <laughs> and you can have one too. You don't have to say it. When I first saw it, back in 1970, back in 1973, when I first saw my first Bhagavad Gita, I said, what is it? Bhagavad Gita? Bhagavad Gita? Bhagavad So here's a verse. Bhagavad Gita is... Uh, <clears throat> it's the most famous text in the world 
Now you may say, well, I've never heard of it, but uh, billions of people around the world have read it for over 5,000 years. Uh, one of them was Albert Einstein. He read it every day. Henry David Thoreau, uh, Ralph, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the list goes on. Where do people who are great thinkers, where do they get this edge <clears throat> on poetry, art, you know? Uh, and Bhagavad Gita, Bhagawan means God. And Gita means song. It's the song of God, Bhagavad Gita. So Krishna uh, sang this song. And, and at this time, uh, Bhagavad Gita is composed in Sanskrit. And Sanskrit is a language that's meant to be sung and not spoken. Uh, you can speak it, but it, it works better if you sing it. People in that. Uh, Sanskrit came uh, from the spiritual world. You know, Krishna's such a happy fellow that he sings. He doesn't just chat, you see. Singing because the, the types of conversation that uh, we are used to having in the liberated stage back home are of loving exchanges and praises. No criticisms, because there's nothing to criticize in that, uh, in that place. And there's nothing to criticize about the inhabitants there, of which you're one, you see. If you can find your true self, you'll find a self that cannot be criticized. But if people choose to, then that's okay with me. But once you know that God finds nothing about you to criticize, and then some other person criticizes you, <clears throat> that's okay, you know, you see. It's like if you go to, if somebody invites you over to their house <coughs> and as you approach the fence, you know, the, the front gate, uh, he's got a dog and the dog is barking. You know, you know, the dog thinks that you're a real jerk and he's going to, he wants to bite you. And you can say, my, oh, but my dear dog, no, your owner, he invited me here. Well, the dog still goes. <laughs> so you can't think. Well, you know, you're just an idiot, you know. Well, you don't understand, and you're entitled to your opinion, you know, until the owner says, no, no, he's okay. You see, so other people may have a bad opinion of you. That's okay. Krishna thinks that I'm uh, kind of a nice guy. Could use an improvement or two, you know. Could, could use a little polishing here and there, but... Uh, Krishna says in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, 27th verse, Prasantamanasam hi enam yoginam sukam uttamam upaiti santa rajasam brahmabhutam akalyasam. Translation The yogi whose mind is fixed on me, Krishna, verily uh, attains the highest perfection. Of transcendental happiness. He is beyond the mode of passion. He realizes his qualitative identity with the Supreme, and thus he is freed from all reactions to past deeds. And Krishna says that in one verse. Uh, the yogi, one who practices spiritual life, it doesn't mean uh, just those who go to the yoga 
twice once a week. You know, it means, no, if you actually incorporate, yoga means to yoke, to link uh, with the Supreme. The yogi whose mind is fixed on me. You have to fix your mind on me, Krishna says. If you do, then you attain the highest perfection of all transcendental happiness. Transcendental means happiness that transcends the material world, it transcends bodily conceptions of happiness. You see, it's a higher happiness. It's a happiness that's felt by the soul. You see, you, you feel. Um, and the nature of that, because your nature is eternal, the nature of this happiness we're talking about is also eternal happiness. So it's not just, well, I'm happy for now. You know, and in a few minutes, I won't be. It's like being entertained, you know, you're entertained for a while and then you're not. <clears throat> this type of happiness, you become happy and you keep it. And then you get more and it accumulates. You see, you don't, it doesn't have a duration. And this is based on transcendental love, loving exchange. So, um, Krishna says he is beyond the mode of passion. Now, what's the mode of passion? It's an intense desire. You know, I have a, a passion to, to climb Mount Everest. That's a passion, you see. Um, but when your passions are used to achieve love of Godhead, then it becomes a transcendental passion. You see, I'm not looking for um, some gratification for myself. I want my loving exchange with Krishna back. You see what I mean? So that is beyond the mode of passion. Typically, I, I'm in the mode of passion because I want something that will make me temporarily happy. I want to, in other words, I want to experience something through my five senses. I want to see or smell, taste, hear, touch. You see. And these are all temporary. <clears throat> they pass right on through. So <clears throat> the material mode of passion is basically lust. I want, I want, I want for me. Spiritual passion is I want to please God and the other living entities. I don't really need to work so hard to please me because I'm already happy. I'm already satisfied. I'm, I'm having a loving relationship with Krishna. I don't need anything. So my desires for me go down. You see, it's just like if you're eating... If you start out a meal and you're real hungry, you eat, 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 but you get to a point where you say, okay, I'm satisfied. So when you, when you get satisfied on the soul level, you get shanti, peace. You feel peaceful. And it doesn't pass. It's like if you, once you get full, your stomach will digest and you'll have to get full again sometimes. <clears throat> but when you get transcendental peace, uh, you, you get to keep it, you see. Operating from that 
platform of being transcendentally satisfied, I don't need to strive for anything else for me. I'm fine. So, but I can spend my time trying to help you and others. You see, if you're fine too and you're on that level, then let's go help other people achieve the level of transcendental satisfaction. And this is how you would bring peace to the world. If we can get more and more people to operate on this uh, uh, other than bodily platform and offering all of their words, thoughts, and activities to God, then we've got a real peaceful place. So, are there any questions, comments, criticisms? Yeah. Is this a question, a comment, or a criticism? It's a question. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just <laughs> This God guy that you speak of seems really needy. Why does he need my love? Why does he need, you know, need to please him so much? He's God. Yeah, why, why, why are they trying to recruit people to serve God? Right, like what's all that? Uh, it's like in, in the kingdom of God, they have like real strict border control or something and there's a, a lack of people who can do the servant work. Is that it? You know, you may wonder, people wonder like that. Now, this is a bona fide question. People wonder. The, the answer is he doesn't need anything. The definition of God is one uh, from which everything cometh. Everything comes from God. So if everything comes from him, he has to have everything. So he doesn't need anything. He's the source of love, so he's not looking for love. But to be able to share love, therefore you come into play. You see? So God could be all alone, and he's the source of love. But if we are there to share his love, then... Uh, we enhance his ecstasy. So it's not that he's a needy guy, uh, but we exist to enhance his ecstasy, which the process of doing that gives us great ecstasy. Being loved by God and loving him back, you know, in a very supreme way, it's a pretty wonderful Wonderful thing, but and that's a good question. People, I've had that. People say, "Why is it? Why do we want us? Why does God want us to serve Him? He doesn't need us to serve Him. He wants. Why does God want me to surrender to Him? Well, because He wants to surrender to you too. That's what lovers do. You see. Or you can say, "No, I choose not to. I don't want to surrender." I'm doing fine in the material world and I'll continue here as I'm doing and try to make the best of it. That's free will. You can do that. You see, it doesn't mean he, that you're bad. He doesn't get angry. But he knows uh, your nature, your eternal nature, that someday you're going to want the real thing. You're going to want real love, genuine love. And when you do, you'll you pursue him. Could you speak briefly on like the importance of a daily 
talk about meditation practice? Like, what does that what does that do for us? What does that well, it's good. Practice? Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the importance of it daily is that, as Krishna says here, the uh, yogi who fixes his mind on me. Now, how do we fix our mind on me? So uh, we can fix our mind on his name. Uh, his He and his name are one and the same. Now, he has unlimited names. It's not that he just has this one name, Krishna, you see. Uh, wherever you go, in every any different country, God has a different name. Uh, in Mexico, he's, uh, what is it, Dios? Dios in, in Spanish? Dios. Dios. In Russia, he's Bach. Believe it or not, that, that doesn't sound like a name for God, but the Russians tell me, Bach. You know, so if you ever hear a Russian say, oh my, Bach, they're talking to us, oh my God. So in Germany, he's Gott. You know, the Hebrews have a different name, Yahweh, although they don't say it. It's only said once in a rare, no, then typically by rabbis, you see. So, um, but all of these names, um, I'm trying to remember the Muslim. Allah, Allah, Allah. Allah. You know, how can I forget that? It's just there. Allah Akbar. God is great. God is good. So all of these names are God. You can't separate God from his name. So when I vibrate this sound vibration, Krishna, he is here. When, when I say Ba, he is there. Dios May God go with you, you know. So God is present in his name. And so there's a way that we can use this in, in a chant or something that we can repeat. And so uh, that's the Maha Mantra. Now you don't have to use those exact words. <clears throat> you can say, you know, Mr. God, Mr. God, you know, bah, bah, bah. But... Krishna likes it when you use this name Krishna because it's kind of a warm and fuzzy name. It's the most attractive, the most beautiful. You see, it's a, it's like calling him, it's like a wife calling her husband sweetheart or a husband calling his wife sweetheart, you see. Uh, a lot of times when there's love involved, there's some sweet names. So this name Krishna is a sweet name name of God. So you can chant this Hare appeals to his feminine energy. God is both male and female. He has male and feminine energy. So we start with her first. Hare Krishna. So I'm saying oh energy of God. Oh God. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna. Hare Hare. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Oh, energy of God. Oh, my dear, loving, beloved Lord, please engage me in your loving devotional service. Let me serve you. Which is a nice, it's, it's kind of nice rather than going to him with all of our requests, you know. 
hey God, uh, can you help me pass this test that I've got coming up? You know, can you, can you help me get over the flu so that I can study for my exam? Help me, and then help me get a good job. Uh, please help me find a good mate and a good, you know, a promotion. And, you know, that's pious to ask stuff from God. God, give me, give me, give me, give me. But it's really sweet to say, now that you've given me and given me and given me, what, what can I do for you? Please give me some service. I want to do something for you. I feel love and I want to uh, demonstrate it. So what we're asking is <clears throat> we, the living entities, don't own or possess really anything. So we're asking him to give us some of his energy so that we can offer it to him. You see? If I want to build a white marble temple for Krishna, well, he's going to have to send the marble because I don't have any. You see what I mean? Everything comes from him. I just want to use the material energy in serving him and not in glorifying myself. <coughs> and so if I chant this on a daily basis. Uh, preferably, if I can do it at the same time every day. You know, like, it seems to work best for most people in the morning. They can chant, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, 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 Hare, for some time. Uh, it fits their consciousness, fixes it on Krishna. They'll think about his presence all the rest of the day. And it's easier to think that what I'm doing, I'm doing as an offering to you, my Lord. This is called sadhana bhakti. Suddenly, you know, <clears throat> it's best if it's done uh, on a regular basis. You see? Keeps us connected. It, ke it's, yeah, it starts the day off with a connection and it keeps us connected through the day. And it, uh, and as you do this through the years and through the decades, it becomes something you don't ever forget. Oh, thank you. You can sit down. Yeah. You see, you don't. It's like when does your mind stop really chanting Hare Krishna? Because it's that's what it does. Chants Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Sometimes you're hearing yourself, and sometimes you're hearing Tia. <laughs> hearing Tia's voice. Or some other great character hero. Does that make any sense? Does that answer your question? Because <coughs> I guess if you don't have that daily practice, then you can forget that easily. If you don't have that daily practice, then the material energy will dictate your day for you. It's like in business. Um, they say you plan your work and work your plan. So if you don't start out the, the day, if you don't start out with a, a plan for your day, then the material energy will engage you into doing no telling what. You see? It's just like that. It just happens like that. But um, 
This is the purpose of this morning sadhana. You, you chant in the morning, and, you, and then you walk up. You when you walk away from it, you uh, pretty much are able to control the day and whatever comes at you. <clears throat> Does that make any sense? Because you're already in a spiritual frame of mind. It's like uh, I, I grew up in uh, an Italian neighborhood, and many of the ladies there that uh, came over, they didn't even speak, many of them didn't even speak English. And, uh, but they went to Mass every day, went to the Catholic Church every day. They started, they, they were not, unless their legs were broken or incredibly sick, they were, they were in church every day, early. And they seemed to be very happy, well-adjusted people. So this isn't anything new. It's common. It's always been common in the Catholic Church and uh, in the Vaishnava philosophy. Oh man, Brother Carlo, thank you. Well, the aroma's kind of intoxicating. This is a, what did you cook up today? Oh, this is uh, from the restaurant. Yes. I just you can't eat anything that I get. That's from from my. Uh, we're, we're serving out right now. Sorry, that's what this. Go ahead. Don't wait for me. Go ahead. Fill up. What is that prayer? My Catholic friends that I grew up with used to have a joke that they would say when their mother was was out of earshot, you know. Uh, God God bless the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. He who eats the fastest gets the most. <laughs> <laughs> and if their mother ever heard, they get locked up in heaven. <clears throat> So, any more questions, comments? Reflections. Huh? Reflections. <laughs> or reflections, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was thinking, uh, as you were speaking about how most of the time we have the tendency <coughs> to ask God for stuff, you know, that's kind of like our default. It's like when we think about God, you know, we think about him in that light, like he's our. But that's pious. Yeah. But that's like the default here, like yeah. the idea that we can do for God is almost like. Yeah, it's like somebody comes up and says, "Oh man, I'm having a big problem in my life. Oh, let's pray to God." That's pious. Yeah. But once in a while, wouldn't it be nice to say, "My dear Lord, I'm coming to you, I'm not asking for anything. I, I want to do something for." And so if you start your day out, my dear Lord, today I want to do for you. And you get to the point to where uh, you realize that you have always been taken care of. And if I just become your instrument, then I don't really have to ask you for anything. You, you've got a plan for me, and it's really great. I didn't always think that I agreed with God's plan. But in hindsight, it's the best. So after a few decades, I learned 
<coughs> just go with his flow. This idea of serving God with love is prevalent in all the major religions, but somehow not always emphasized. The major, uh, mo- those who are uh, modified, yes. And it's the underlying basis right. of why that even, they even have a religion. Right. Now, it may be expressed a little differently depending on where they may be, you see what I mean, there may be some, but it's the underlying cause of religion, to learn to love God and to share that love with him. <clears throat> you see, so, and if a religion it can't take you to loving God, then what's the value? Right. Or if that's not the goal. (coughs) Well, you get a lot of religions that are all about the reward. So it's not so much about loving God, but it's, you know. And and that's still pious. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be a good person so that I can go to heaven. That's pious. It's not real loving, but it's pious. Yeah. I want to I want to lead a good life so that I can have a good life and go and, and go to heaven and not go to the bad place. You see, that's pious. Better than that is, my dear Lord, I just want to be with you and serve you, whatever. However, that takes shape. I, mean, I just want to be with you. I want to share about the. Elijah, are you not going to eat tonight? <laughs> ah, spoke too soon. <laughs> what else? Did you film it tonight? I believe Rawson, uh, Titania Lila was filming. I think maybe the phone died. Did the phone die? Yeah. 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 Yeah, the audio is recording. Okay. It wasn't on my stream. Well, can you uh, shut it down? Yeah. Because. Uh, Subject or shut. Well, I have something I have to do.